was surprising with the Christmas tree and the angels and all this stuff around here not to hear any Christmas songs. So, um, but it's actually quite helpful. Uh, for the, because it's interesting in our, car, in, our, in our culture still how much Christmas still dominates September. Sorry, de- December. Wow, we're still in September. It, and it's interesting because in popular culture and in the minds of most people, it looms much larger than Easter. And yesterday I was shopping with my boys and they wanted to buy some Christmas gifts and, you know, walking around Grandview and many of the stores. And I was struck with how many of the Christmas carols and hymns about the birth of Jesus and Mother Mary were still being played and still being sung. Of course, there was Frosty and a few other ones, but no baby, it's cold outside, if anyone's following that one. Um, but there was all these hymns and, 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 and songs about the nativity. And it was, it was striking because at, at Easter time, you don't hear resurrection songs in a mall. Never. And it's easy to understand the popularity of Christmas in many ways, especially for children. It's a holiday from school. Gifts, presents, Christmas lights in the dark of winter. And it's obvious, if you think about it, why Santa is much more exciting than the Easter Bunny. Right? And yet it's, and it's also easy to understand why the stores like it and, and capitalize upon it because it's profit and sales and money. And it, it would be like Scrooge realizing you can make more money at Christmas time because of Christmas, and so he would start playing Christmas hymns and songs. But it's the countdown to Christmas and the lead-up, and you have all these songs and, and cultural markers that we see around us, and now on these Advent Sunday, Sundays become, become centered and focused around the incarnation and the birth of Jesus. And if, you've, if, you, if you had never read the New Testament, you'd imagine there's so much about the birth of Jesus. You'd imagine it's filled with this, but in fact there isn't. Apart from the first two chapters of Matthew and the first two chapters of Luke, there is virtually nothing. Right? And that's surprising, that's startling to us, especially how dominant it is in, in our culture and often in our, our communities and how much we enjoy this season. Um, but apart from Matthew and Luke, we would know nothing about the birth of Christ. Mark and John have no birth narratives, no mention of the virgin conception. I mean, Paul speaks of Jesus being a descendant of David, but nothing of his birth apart from saying that he was born of a woman, born under the law. Right? I mean, this is only in Matthew and Luke, interestingly. And yet, yesterday, on the speakers in a store, someone was singing a song they hadn't heard for a while, and one of the lines was, man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. And I was just thinking about that line, man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Of course, you know, you have the gender-specific man that's going to be changed in some of the newer songs, of course, but people shall live forever because of Christmas Day. And yet, the New Testament will say, well, no, because of Good Friday because of Easter, because of Pentecost. But there's still this interesting element of what does Christmas Day mean? But the center and core of the New Testament message centers on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we left that last song with singing of the wondrous cross. And Isaac Watts, of course, usually at this time of year, we'd be singing Isaac Watts' other hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. And yet for Watts too, the center of most of his hymns are going to be centered around the wondrous cross and the death of Christ and this idea of redemption and salvation. But he does have the, joy, the, the, the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. And Christmas Day does still capture the church's imagination. I mean, it's a staggering idea, the idea of God coming in the form of a baby. Right? And many of those hymns and carols, even in Grandview Heights, walking through the stores, express some profound theological truths and some profound lines. And the more they're played in stores, the better, right? Uh, but these so-called Christmas stories, these birth stories, are so riveting and fascinating that we turn to them each year anew and find fresh insights and fresh ideas and fresh angles. And at some level, they don't get old. 
but we have to hear them again anew. So we're going to look today at the uh, story of the Annunciation, the birth of Jesus foretold um, in, in Luke 1, 20, verse 26. We've got it on the screen. This is from the New Living Translation. It's just very readable. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be frightened, Mary, the angel told her, for God has decided to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. He will be very great, and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can I have a baby? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you so the baby born to you will be holy and he will be called the son of god what's more your relative elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age people used to say she was barren but she's already in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with god mary responded i am the lord's servant and i'm willing to accept whatever he wants may everything you've said come true and then the angel left. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, You are blessed by God above all other women, and your child is blessed. What an honor this is that the mother of my Lord should visit me. When you came in and greeted me, my baby jumped for joy the instant I heard your voice. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Luke tells a story immediately after the announcement to the elderly Zechariah that he would have a son. And a couple weeks ago, we had a chance to look at that. And remember Zechariah, he naturally doubted and was filled with disbelief at this incredible, unbelievable news. It just was too much to bear because of his age and, and so forth, and you know the, how far along. It seemed ridiculous to him, and he, was, he doesn't believe it, and he's struck dumb, and yet his barren wife Elizabeth conceived, and she's essentially gone almost into hiding and seclusion, uh, and now she's in her sixth month, and this links the two stories. But at this point in the narrative, the last time we saw her, she has new life in her old barren body, and she celebrates God's favor, God's grace, and the, this new hope of joy and gladness. And they were told, Zechariah, this child will be for you, joy and gladness. And she celebrates what the Lord has done for her, and looking as he has looked favorably upon her. And that's where the story ended. And now Luke picks up this other announcement story. And he places these stories very deliberately side by side. And sometimes to, to read the Bible or the, especially the Gospels and the stories well, you have to kind of compare and contrast. Why is this story here? Why is this place with this? And the similarities become very obvious as you read the two. The form of the language of the two stories are completely parallel. We have the, and what, the events, the appearance of Gabriel, the response of the angel, the promise of a son, an objection, a sign and the departure of Gabriel, and even the language is, is, is clearly echoed. God sent Gabriel. Do not be afraid. 
you will bear a son. You will name him. He will be great. And so we have all these echoes, and so we clearly have these two stories side by side, and the one account will recall and interpret the other. And these two scenes, these two mothers, these sons belong together within this larger story of the Old Testament and salvation history. But then we think of the contrast, because this becomes very interesting too. Instead now of an old man and a priest, instead of the temple, all of a sudden we're in this small little village in Naz of Nazareth, and Gabriel appears to a young woman, a peasant, right? I mean, they both will have sons, but Mary's, we're told, will be greater. John will be the prophet of the Most High. Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. One will announce the coming of the kingdom of God, and one, we're told, will reign over the, the kingdom of Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so both of these are, are, are startling, and both are these important, significant people, and they're both giving these birth stories. And both will involve a mighty work of God. In Elizabeth's case, this old woman will conceive, right? She will conceive. But in Mary's case, something unprecedented in the history of Israel happens. She's told, we're told a virgin will conceive. I mean, there's no precedent for this in the Bible. And some skeptics will say, well, that's because they're just borrowing this from the pagan mythologies and the pagan stories of the Greco-Roman world. That's what they're doing. They're just trying to outdo those stories. Because there, some virgins will conceive children from gods, or some women will conceive demigods. And they will say, Matthew and Luke are just trying to cover up one of the virgin births of the pagan stories and one-up it. Right? They're just trying to show this is even more important than the story of you know, Alexander the Great or Hercules or Perseus. And yet, when you start to look at those stories, and that'll startle and take many Christians aback, when, these, when you actually read and look at some of these stories, especially, for example, the Greek stories, and Luke, of course, is writing his gospel in Greek, in the Greco-Roman world, and you'll see how different they are. They're the gods like Zeus or Dionysus or Apollo. They seduce, they trick, and have sex with these beautiful young women, and they give, and they give birth to demigods, which they want to protect and so forth. And so these sons of God, as they're called in the Greek stories, like Hercules and Perseus, are often these results of these adulterous affairs, these tricky affairs, um, where, and they're often born in very strange, absurd ways, right? Because if you look at the story of Dionysus, for example, he's born out of Zeus's thigh. Okay? And one demigod was born out of Athena's armpit. Right? But they're all born through sexual reproduction, through a male and a female. They're not technically virgin conceptions or birth. And technically, I mean, really what we're dealing with here is a virginal conception of a child. But, you know, and there's nothing, you know, illegal and, or dirty or debauched to these stories, as, you, as they are in often the Greek and Egyptian stories. You know, Paul will just say he was born of a woman, born under the law. And yet we have this figure of Mary, right? And... You know, at the center of the story, here she is, as blessed are you among women, and what place and what role she's given to. And if, if, in fact, if it wasn't for Luke's gospel, we'd know very little about Mary. I mean, Mark refers to her by name only once, calling him the son of Mary. Matthew uses her name five times, but he more focuses on Joseph. But Luke mentions her 13 times, and, you know, and, and there, John will just talk about the mother of Jesus, right? the mother of Jesus, his mother on several occasions, but, but, and the epistles never mention her by name at all. None of the letters mention her by name. And after Acts 1, Luke never mentions her again. Right? I mean, this remains a puzzle why she's not mentioned from Romans to Revelation. You don't have a word about her. 
And it's an interesting fact because in our culture, I mean, one of the songs that was playing over in some of the song in, in the malls, Ava Maria, we'll hear that often, right? In our, in our culture, Roman Catholics and their excessive devotion to Mary, it's a fact that they need to somewhat look at and, and take seriously. And if you've ever traveled to predominantly Catholic countries like Spain or Italy or Ireland, you will see Marian devotion and piety everywhere, right? And some will even elevate her and you'll see titles of the co-redemptrix, the co-redeemer, right? So you'll, you'll see this often. And the interesting thing is as you look at the New Testament, you see it's not there. And so sometimes what happens is Protestants and evangelical Christians will respond and they will react, as we often do. We are reactionary people. We react often. And instead of what we do, we react negatively and we'll denigrate Mary, downplay her importance in salvation history, right? I mean, you think of how excess causes us to react and, and back. And yet Luke gives her a prominent place. It, she's given an important part of his story, of his two, this two-volume Luke-Acts work, and she is given this place and held up in many ways as a model, as we're going to see. He introduces her with no genealogy, no background. She's simply this young virgin in Galilee who is engaged to a man named Joseph. And the only importance of Joseph in Luke's story is his lineage. He's of the house of David. He's an ancestor of David. That's Joseph's important here. And Luke will later give Joseph's genealogy in chapter 3. But he doesn't give Mary's genealogy. I mean, Mary seems to have no special status, no importance, other than the fact that her fiancé is a descendant of King David. That's it, right? And her fiancé is nobody special. He's just some pious Jewish carpenter in a small little town named Nazareth, some insignificant place. And remember John's gospel has that line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it's just like Sardis or, you know something like yarrow, right? Like, you know, you're just hearing something and that's it, right? Um, really? Nazareth, really? Mary is a lowly nobody in her culture on the basis of, of gender and class and age. She's just a marginal figure and she's one of the little people of the world in terms of status. But in this story, she's raised up and elevated and her lowly status is reversed and turned around. And this becomes a, a pattern over and over in Luke. How about these great reversal? The Christmas story at one level is a reversal, right? He addresses her via Gabriel with his greeting that, in the NLT is kind of nice, disturbs her. She's confused and disturbed. And I think it captures the sense of that because sometimes it's perplexed or confused. But they kind of can't figure, decide one word, so they go confused and disturbed. And I think that captures the idea that this is somewhat disturbing. And it's interesting that, that this phrase is so memorable, and the translations will all translate it differently. In the original Greek, it's got this really nice sound, keri kekeratomene, right? It's got this nice alliteration, the sound that you, it can't really be brought in English. Uh, the King James will say, hail, thou that art highly favored, right? The ESV and the RSV will say, greetings, O favored one, right? So, some will, it's kind of sounds like a bit of, uh, you know, and the first words of an alien just landing on earth somewhat. So it's kind of unfortunate. Greetings, O favored one. Right? You kind of sound like this bit of an odd sound to it. But it sounds a bit alien. Others will translate it, hail, gifted lady. Hail, gifted lady. But the phrase most people have heard over and over again is, of course, hail, Mary, full of grace. That's the phrase most people have heard over and over. That's what's found in most, most Catholic translations based on the Latin Vulgate where it has this phrase, gratia plena, like full of grace. And of course, you know, I, I title this something about Mary, but what exactly is this about Mary? Is she indeed full of grace? And that phrase has led to this interesting theological speculation that 
about Mary, that there's something more, that she has more grace and she can just bestow it, that she's full of it and she can bestow it. But Mary in this, in this, in this passage is not so full of grace that she can just dispense it and, and, and release it to others. I mean, Catholic theology will build on that. In fact, when we hear the phrase immaculate conception, we think, oh, it's the virginal conception, it's the birth of Jesus, but it, that's not what it means in Catholic theology. In Catholic theology, immaculate conception is Mary's birth without sin. That's what it refers to. And of course, there's other elements that she didn't die because she, she had this immaculate conception, the heavenly assumption that she's taken up into heaven. And so, of course, all this can't be defended from the New Testament and his later legend and tradition. Um, in fact, in this passage later in Luke, Mary will speak of God, my Savior. She'll rejoice in the Magnificat of God, my Savior, and she celebrates God's mercy to her. And so she's not full of grace. She is graced. She is graced. She is not the source of grace. She's the object of this outstanding grace. She's gifted to bear the Messiah. She's not the gifter or giver of grace. She receives grace. She is graced, the gifted one that's given this grace. And she's blessed. She receives this blessing. And we can and should call Mary blessed, right? Blessed are you among women. She is blessed among women. She's given this exalted status. She's chosen for one of the most important tasks in the history of the Bible, to be the human carrier of God incarnate in her womb, to nurture him, to love him, to raise him into manhood. This is her vocation. This is her calling as the mother of the Lord. And of course, even at the cross in John's gospel, the, the Lord retains a special affection for his mother, right? And, it, and, and, and so to have some affection for Mary and to honor her is completely biblical, right? The Bible's filled with many Marys, but she's the most important Mary, clearly. And so she, here in this phrase that, that, that Luke uses, kaira kekeratomene, she is the grace one, bestowed with divine favor and grace for this special task. And it's none of her, none of her special qualities. I mean, none of that comes out. We're never told anything of the reasons exactly why she's chosen. That's tucked away in the purposes and plan of God. And we just see this choice of grace that she's favored, right? And we see... Interestingly, what Luke wants to really highlight is her response to this greeting, that she is troubled and fearful. As Steve, Steve spoke about earlier, this idea of fear, being frightened, this, this encounter, however it was, right? I mean, if you look at some of the, the films like Frank Zeffirelli's miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, you just see Mary, and there's a little shaft of light, and you see a one-way conversation, and she's just hearing a voice. And, you know, we're left to imagine or wonder how exactly this plays out. And we're not, in some ways, it's indescribable. And we're not really told, but she, she's assured, she's spoken, uh, spoken to, fear not, you have found favor with God in verse 30. And that's the word for grace, the Greek word for grace. You have found grace with God, favor, right? And it's a strange grace, a strange blessing that she, a virgin, will now conceive and bear a son that she will name Jesus, which is not a new name. It's the Hebrew equivalent of, of Yeshua, Joshua. You're going to have a baby named Josh, and Mary would know its meaning. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. Right? Jehovah saves. And she is told, though, that this is not just another deliverer, another per, uh, person raised up to kind of trying to cast off the Romans and another one like Samson, but the son of the Most High. And for Mary, this kind of language is very clear. It's And hearing phrases like son of God. I mean, we hear those phrases that we hear all our, our theology and Trinitarian theology and so forth. Mary would have none, known none of that but she would hear some biblical Old Testament echoes. She would know who was supposed to be the son of God. The son of God was the son of David and was going to, in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2, the anointed king, the son of David. She would, and, and, she, and told that here, he'll be given the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob. 
Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So she's hearing this like the one that's God's son, Messiah, the king, right? It, the, the whole thing, I mean, that popular song that you hear, Mary, did you know? Well, there's a lot of things she would have no, no knowledge of. And how could she know? How could she understand? There, it remains this huge mystery to Mary, right, of what is going on. But she would hear some echoes. The son of the Most High is the true once and future king, the promised one, the hope of Israel, the deliverer. And here she is, a virgin, a teenager who's engaged, and she's like, how can, I have the, how can this be? I don't even know a man, right? How can this be? How is this possible? How can this happen? She understands, okay, that you know, virgins don't conceive. She wants an explanation, not proof. And she receives an answer. Not a rebuke, and the answer, of course, is shrouded in mystery, that it'll be unnatural, it'll be unusual, it'll be this conception that, that you'll conceive through the Holy Spirit who will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's a very unusual kind of overshadow you. What does this mean? But, and that there's this Holy One that will be born of you will be called the Son of God. And so she is, it is made very clear to Mary that she is not going to have a son in the ordinary human way. They should not conceive in the ordinary human way. That there's something extraordinary. The verb overshadow just speaks of this mystery. I mean, this is not IVF and the Holy Spirit is not presented as some kind of sperm donor. I mean, there's nothing of this type of idea here at all. It's just shrouding this mysterious overshadowing and of God's super spirit supernaturally imparting divine life into Mary's womb. Right? At some level, this is a new genesis, and you'll see some of these echoes, an allusion to a new beginning. Remember in the beginning, the spirit hovering over, hovering over the face of the deep, and now creating something from nothing in Mary's womb, in the beginning of the gospel. And we're led to think, okay, this is some kind of new beginning, new creation of what the gospel and what this glad tidings is going to be about, of this new creation, something fresh and new happening in the old world. And of course, skeptics are going to sneer, right? They're going to reject any possibility of mystery or any possibility of God acting in history or time. A scientist will say, this is impossible, right? Mothers don't give birth as virgins. Virgins don't conceive. And they're right at some level, right? Mary knows that too. She knows about, enough about sexual reproduction. How will this be since I do not know a man? I mean, the ancient world may not know about Fallopian, fallopian tubes or X chromosomes and Y chromosomes, but they know where babies come from. They understand that. I mean, in Matthew's gospel, this is why Joseph's got to put her away, right? Is there some immorality? Is there some kind of something unseemly with Mary, right? He's troubled because Mary is pregnant. Pregnant, He suspects she's had an affair or being unchaste. In the second century, um, Salsus kind of talks about well, you know, it was some Roman soldier and he provides a name and this is what would have happened. It was just, you know, she was raped by a Roman soldier. But you know, and it's just an Ill illegitimate child. But here in this story, none of that is, is, is brought in. Joseph even, even thinks she's perhaps been unchaste. But he thinks she's no longer a virgin. And he needs a divine dream to tell him the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. And so there we have this, this story of, of Mary conceiving. And, of course, there's a lot of stuff written about this, and many are going to say, well, this is just a typical anti-sex, anti-women story. And I want to read the words of, of Tom Wright here as a New Testament historian and commentator, and he says it a lot better than I can. He says this, The story says nothing about Mary remaining a virgin after Jesus' birth. That's a much later idea. Nor does it say anything about the goodness or badness of sexual identity 
or sexual relations. Whatever Luke and Matthew are trying to say with these stories, they aren't saying virginity is morally better than marriage. They're not denigrating sex, women, conception, or birth. They are simply reporting that Jesus did not have a father in the ordinary way, and that this was because Mary had been given special grace to be the mother of God's incarnate self. Jesus, as Luke will show, and historic Christianity will insist, is fully human, but he's not less than fully human because of this. He is just more than merely human. And biologists will even say, well, you know, virgin birth can be theoretically possible. There's something called parthenogenesis, right? This Greek word that means virgin genesis. But that, and it's just natural form of asexual reproduction, which is quite interesting that some small lizards or scorpions and other creatures can reproduce without sex, without a male. And it's like this like, tantalizing possibility here. But the offspring, interestingly, is always female, never male. And so the truly remarkable thing from a scientific point of view is Jesus was male, right? I mean, that's it, this interesting element that comes out of this story. And, of course, you cannot scientifically or historically prove this. Right? You're never going to accept it's true unless you're already open to this possibility that Jesus, though a full human being, was also the one through who Israel's God was making his personal appearance on the stage of history. If you can accept that, if you can believe the doctrine of incarnation and phrases like Emmanuel, then you're open to that possibility. Then you can, be, can, can think of, well, maybe this, 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 this is the way this happens, Right? And of course, this is not the most important thing in the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul never mentions it, right? His death and resurrection, as we said in the beginning, remain far more significant. It's not a core part of the gospel message, yet it's part of the good news, a part of the gospel which explains his identity, his human birth in relation to his divine person and his bond with humanity. And for those that can sing the songs of what the atonement is and the wondrous cross and have come to this faith in a crucified and risen Jesus who have opened to the, the, the miracle of Easter, the possibility of Easter, Easter and the resurrection, then I think there's a sense of somehow this is appropriate, this story. You know, Matt, Luke and Matthew's story, it isn't what we would have expected. There's a sense of surprise, something unusual, and yet somehow this rings true that you think, well, that's, that seems like the way God would probably want to do it, right? Only in retrospect that you're like, okay, well, of course, right? This seems different. And many today will still respond like Zechariah with doubt and unbelief demanding proof. But Luke instead sets up the contrast of Mary. At this way, she's held up as a model. It's her response. She's given... An unasked sign, the barren Elizabeth's conception. Well, go see your, your cousin Elizabeth. She's six months pregnant. She was once called barren. Life was created in, in her. And she's given the words of old to Abraham and Sarah, right? The creed behind all creeds. At one level, this is, you know, the creed behind all creed that was spoken to uh, Abraham and Sarah when they kind of ridicule the idea that they're about to have a child, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Right? And that's the words that are behind it all, and that's the kind of element. If you can grasp onto that, then you can accept the story. And for Mary, that's enough. She responds to this, this strange, peculiar word in faith and submission, and, and she, she surprisingly in this scene has the last word. She embraces it, no matter what the cost or, or risk to herself. And for Luke, he holds this up as the model of, of faith in many ways, the model response. It's how he sees Israel should respond, how Theophilus, how the disciples should respond. And her response is 
behold the servant of the Lord, the slave of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Let it be. Right? We even have that song, even the Beatles popularized that idea, let it be. Let it be. Right? Let it be with me according to your words. Let it be. She says essentially, yes. I mean, that raises an interesting question. I mean, can, can Mary say no? Right? I mean, she's, let it be. She bows to this. She accepts this. Right? Her words present her as the ideal believer, the ideal disciple. She's held up here as a model. Not only is she characterized as favored of God, she's characterized as thoughtful, as obedient, as believing. We'll say her later as worshipful in the Magnificat and her piety and uh, uh, devout. But here her faith shines through, right? That's what shines through. And this sentence character, characterizes her remarkable faith and submission. It's really interesting how she moves from how can this be to let it be. How can this be? How can this be to, okay, let it be. Let it be to me according to your word. And I want to read just a little section from a poem by the poet Denise Levertov, and she captures the significance of this moment very brilliantly in her poem, and this is just a part of it. It's called The Annunciation. And she says this, Called to a destiny more momentous than any in all of time, she did not quail, only asked a simple, how can this be? And gravely, courteously, took to heart the angel's reply, perceiving instantly the astounding ministry she was offered to bear in her womb infinite weight and lightness, to carry in in hidden finite inwardness nine months of eternity, to contain in slender vase of being the sum of power in narrow flesh, the sum of light, then bring to birth, push out into air, a man-child, needing like any other milk, and love, but who is God? Right? And when Mary goes to visit uh, Elizabeth's next scene, Elizabeth first bears witness to some startling reality as she calls her the mother of my Lord. I nurse that phrase, the mother of my Lord. Right? That she's the mother of the Lord. And Luke highlights this. And here's where the, all of a sudden these two stories that are set up, these two annunciation stories, now they skillfully intersect and come together. Right? The meeting of the two mothers. The one is old, her son is going to close out the age, John the Baptist, right? and help usher in the new one. And the other is young, and he'll usher in this new age, right? this, new, this new creation. And she makes haste. I mean, there's Mary. She hears this message. She runs to Elizabeth. She makes haste and goes to Elizabeth to share, to question, to wonder, stunned that both of them are pregnant. Right? This is the element. And here on that theme, John leaps in the womb with joy. And this is his first prophetic act in Luke. Right? That Elizabeth's filled with the Spirit. The, the babe leaps with joy. There's this response. There's this recognition of who this is. And she, Elizabeth, is filled with the Spirit. All of a sudden, the Spirit comes one and she blesses Mary and the fruit of her womb. And she calls her, again, the mother of my Lord. And to her, I was like, this is the recognition. This is the coming of the Lord, the coming of Yahweh, the Lord himself in the womb of Mary. She's recognizing, and Lucas pointed out, this is the visitation of God that the Old Testament is waiting for. And the Spirit enables Elizabeth to recognize this, inspires this epiphany. It's a revelation, right? And she speaks, essentially, this speech on God's behalf. And so she ends, interestingly, with the beatitude, a blessing on Mary, right? She says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord. Blessed is she who believed. The contrast is to Elizabeth's husband, who didn't believe. The subtle criticism of Zechariah. But Mary believes, let it be. She accepts the word of God. She submits to it. She bows to it, right? And thus she becomes the mother of the Lord. 
And I think this is where Luke and others, as, as, as evangelical Christians, as we look at these stories, we can too say with Elizabeth, blessed is she, blessed is she. But the second part of that phrase is, is more important, blessed is the fruit of her womb, Jesus, of who she gives birth to. Because ultimately, he's not the gift only to Mary, but the gift to all who receive the message. And Steve just read that famous line of the herald angels, right? I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Right? This is the, that gospel message, great joy for all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And so this is the gospel of great joy, that, that not, the, not just the infant, not just the baby, the one who grows up to be a man, to die on a cross and to rise again, who becomes the, exalted as Lord. That's the gospel of great joy, a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. And this is the gospel of great joy. And this is what so many of the hymns and the carols at this season get right. Right? They're still playing in our malls and our stores. They get right because of Christmas Day. A Savior, the Messiah, the Lord has come, and we're called to rejoice, to celebrate it. And for many of us, this is a time of mixed emotions and mixed feelings. For myself, it'll be the first Christmas to spend without my dad. And we, 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 we're called into this idea of to, to still celebrate this story, this hope of resurrection, of new life. And this is what that gospel penetrates around that stems out of one who's born to die that in the face of death, that there's victory and overcoming of it, and those interesting signs of manger and cross or empty cross are, are still all a part of this Christmas story um, that, that we hear every, every Christmas and celebrate. So I hope for you it will be a Merry Christmas, right? The, the sense of the Merry, of joy, and that we can really rejoice in that and, and celebrate that and rejoice. Let's just close in a word of prayer. God and our Father, we just thank you for this story that is so startling and so strange, so unusual. And in many ways, it, 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 it stretches our, our faith and incredulity, and we wonder and we question. And yet, this seems also fitting that this is how you would do it, right? So unusual. We'd never think of you know, a birth with, with, in such a strange way and with, without all the pomp and circumstance. We'd expect a, a much different thing. And yet, the God of the, you're always the God of surprises, the God um, who humbled, him, hum, humbled himself in the form of your son. And we just thank you for, for this story. We just pray that, again, we would capture the, the joy and the strangeness and the celebration of the story, that it would speak to us, that it would grip us, and we might um, enter into the, the rejoicing and singing of some of these theological truths as we remember his birth, um, his, his life, and his death and resurrection. And we just thank you for the example of Mary. We, may we have that faith just to say, let it be according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. And we may have that submission and obedience and, and that we might be two mo models of this, of, of this blessed is he who, or she who believes, that we might believe. And we just grant us this faith. We ask it in this Christmas season and that we might have this joy and go forth. And we just pray your blessing upon this congregation here. And we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.